You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and we will read together verse 9 through 21 before we begin. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time before we study. Our Father, it is with great anticipation that we, at any time, open up your word. We desire to hear from you in the pages of Scripture. We thank you that you have communicated to us, not through our own visions or our own mental impressions, but that you have written it down in a book so that we might read it, that we might study it, memorize it, consider it, understand it. We thank you that your word is settled in the heavens, that is forever true and sure. And we now ask that you would illuminate it to our hearts and our minds as we give consideration to these things. We entrust our time here to you and pray that you would be pleased to enlighten our minds and our hearts and drive these truths home to us today in a a new and refreshing way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our text this morning is John 3.16, and I've been asking myself for the last seven days, how do you preach on John 3.16? What can I possibly say about John 3.16 that has not already been said by thousands of other men millions of different times? Uh, of all the passages in the entire New Testament, John 3.16 is probably the most familiar, most loved, most cherished, most quoted, most written, most printed, most recited, most referenced verse out of any verse in the New Testament. It's not the whole Bible, really. It is so familiar to us. That they say that familiarity breeds contempt, but I think that in the case of John 3.16, familiarity just serves to endear our hearts to what is contained in that. For the child of God, John 3.16 could not be any more precious to us. And the more time that we spend reflecting on it and thinking upon it and meditating on it, memorizing it and considering it, the more dear it becomes to us. It's certainly a very dear passage to my own heart, which is why it kind of for a moment shocked me this last week when I realized that in almost 14 years of preaching now, week after week, I've never preached John 3.16. It's not because I have anything against the verse. It's just because we've never gone through the Gospel of John before. And so it's never come up in sort of a a very systematic approach to Scripture. And we don't really take a passage here and a passage there and 
flip around through the New Testament, we, and by we I mean elders, maybe not everybody here in this congregation, but certainly the leadership of the church doesn't believe that that is always the best and most fruitful way to preach through um, to a congregation Sunday after Sunday. And so having never gone through John, we've never dealt with John 3.16. And I may never again ever preach John 3.16 simply because if you have your way, when we get done with the book of John, we will never, at least in my lifetime, probably go through the gospel again. We have other books that we need to preach through. So it is really a delight now to finally have a chance to very systematically go through the Gospel of John, and thus John 3.16. This verse really is central to everything that we do. I was thinking about it this last week. John 3.16 explains why we do what we do as a church. Why do we gather here together on a Sunday morning? It's because John 3.16 is in there, and that's true. That God loved us enough to send His Son to die and to pay the price to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. It is because God so loves the world that we gather here together as a joyful response in worship to the love that He has shown us. Why do we love one another and why do we love God? It's because He first loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction for our sins. Why do we serve the Lord? It is an obedient response of gratitude for what He has done for us in John 3.16. Why do we preach and why do we teach? Really, everything that we do here in a church by way of preaching or teaching is to explain and apply the implications and the theology of what's contained in John 3.16. It's been called the greatest verse in all of the Bible because it really tells the greatest story ever told about the greatest subject that one could possibly ever think upon. It contains the greatest being, that is God, and God so loved, that's the greatest virtue, the world, that is the greatest object possible for the greatest virtue, for the greatest being to love, that He gave, that's the greatest action, His only begotten Son, which is the greatest gift, so that whosoever, that's the greatest invitation, would believe on Him, would not perish, that's the greatest loss that a person could possibly suffer, but have eternal life, and that's the greatest thing that anybody could gain. The greatest being, the greatest action, the greatest virtue, the greatest gift, the greatest giving, the greatest response, the greatest invitation, the greatest loss, and the greatest gain are all in John 3.16. I don't think it would be an overstatement to say that everything in the Old Testament points toward and anticipates what's contained in John 3.16, and everything in the New Testament explains and applies the truth that's in John 3.16. So I've been asking myself, how do you preach John 3.16? I've been kicking that around for seven days. Actually, truth be told, I've been kicking that around in my melon since we started the Gospel of John to begin with. Kind of dreading John 3.16, thinking, how am I going to do justice to that verse? If you've ever taught or preached, then you know that always, if you're a teacher who takes the text seriously, you know that there is always this crushing weight in the back of your mind, am I going to be able to do justice to the text that is committed to my charge? You always want to do justice to the text. I find it tremendously comforting to realize that I have never done justice to any text I have ever preached. So if I whiff it on John 3.16, it will certainly not be the first time that I have whiffed it on a text. So how are we going to preach John 3.16? The same way I preach every other passage of Scripture. I'm going to give you basically sort of a five-point outline. And we could handle Look, I probably read, I'm going to say, eight or nine commentators, commentaries on John 3.16 this last week, which means that I have eight or nine outlines that I could use. So I came up with my own today. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at John 3.16 from the vantage point of the love of God. And we're going to see how the love of God is manifested in five things. Five things in John 3.16. First, the love of God is manifested in the object, in the object that is love. That is, He loved the world. 
Second, we're going to see how the love of God is manifested in the gift that was given. He gave His only begotten Son. Third, it is manifested in the invitation that is offered. Whosoever believes. Fourth, it is manifested in the response that is required, and that is belief. Just a simple response, right? Not that whosoever works real hard or does this or does that has eternal life, but whosoever or all of those who believe. And the fifth thing we're going to see is that the love of God is manifested in the deliverance the deliverance that is granted. He will not perish, but will have eternal life. So the object that is loved, the gift that is given, the invitation that's offered, the response that's required, and the deliverance that is that is granted. Today we're just going to look at the object that is love, for God so loved the world. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how long is it going to take to get through John 3.16 if you're only going to give one of the five points? I don't know. This Sunday we will deal with, for God so loved the world, because there's a lot there that needs to be unpacked. And next time that we're together in the book of John will be Resurrection Sunday, April Fourth, And on that day, we will look at the gift that was given that he gave his only begotten son. How appropriate is that? For the first time, and I don't know how long, it actually works out to have a holiday coincide with something in the text that we can address, rather than preaching on a Christmas theme in the middle of summer when it's 100 degrees out and nobody really wants to be talking about Christmas at all. So that's what we're doing today. For God so loved the world, the object of God's love. His love is manifested, the greatness of his love is manifested in the object that he loved. For God so loved the world. And we'll just sort of categorize our thoughts this morning under three headings. First, God. Second, loved. And third, world. Now, I know that is a very complex outline, but just do your best to follow along with me under those three headings. God, loved, and world. And I'll repeat it several times so that we can all follow along together. I may be a lot of things, but complex is not one of them. There's a reason why my grandpa always called me a simpleton, and it's evident from this morning's outline. God, Loved and world. So let's first look at God. For God so loved the world. Now, who's saying this in verse 16? Who's speaking? Jesus is speaking. Some commentators would put everything in verse 16 through verse 21 in black letters saying that this is John's commentary on it. I don't think so. I think this is still red letter stuff. I think this is Jesus, part of Jesus' explanation to Nicodemus of the heavenly things. So I see verse 16 through 21 as all being red letters, not just because it's that way in my Bible, but because I believe this is Jesus' explanation to Nicodemus of what one must know and believe in order to be born again. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It is an understanding that and embracing that that one is born again. So verse 16 is Jesus speaking. So when Jesus said that God so loved the world, what does Jesus mean? Does Jesus mean God the Father or God as a trinity? Think for a second. The reference to God in verse 16, is it God the Father that's being referenced or God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that's being referenced? Because sometimes God refers to one, sometimes God refers to all three of the persons or two of the persons. I believe that Jesus is speaking of the Father's love. The Father's love. Why do I say that? Because it's the Son that's speaking of the love that the Father has for the whole world. For God, that is the Father, loved the world so much that He sent His Son. So the God being referenced is God the Father. Now having said that, it's also important to recognize that we don't, we don't view the love of the Father as different from or distinct from the love of the Son. See, since we believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three persons are the one God, co-equal, co-substantial, co-eternal with each other. Anything that can be said of God can also be affirmed of the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. 
And I just point this out so that you and I don't, in our minds, start to think, well, it was the love of the Father that brought the atonement, and Christ and the Holy Spirit were merely sort of begrudging participants in the plan of salvation. It is here the love of the Father that's being highlighted by the Son, but it is entirely appropriate to see that God so loved as a reference not only to the Father, but also to the Son and also to the Holy Spirit. Because it's not as if the Father loved us and the Son did not. Because the New Testament teaches also that Christ, the Son, loved us. I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. And I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the... Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So the Son loved us as well, and it's appropriate to see the Spirit as having loved us. So it is God, the Father, that's being spoken of in verse 16, that God so loved the world. And it was the Father's love that brought the atonement, and it is the very nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to love. Love is so much a part of the nature of God that if you and I are truly children of God, we will reflect that nature and we will also love. I want you to listen to 1 John chapter 4, because John, as an author, highlights probably the term love more than any of the other New Testament authors. That's why John is called the Apostle of Love. The Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, they highlight this theme of love. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. It's part of his essential nature. Verse 10 of the same chapter, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 16, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Chapter 4, verse 19, We love because He first loved us. Why do we love? Why is there love in our hearts? Not only for one another, but for God. It is not that God loved us because He saw how lovely we were, or that we were able to love Him. And it's not that God saw that we loved Him and then loved us in return. We love because He first loved us. He loved us before the world began. He loved us before time began. He loved us before He spoke a single atom into existence. God loved us first. First in priority, first in prominence. He loved us and it is a response to His love for us that we love Him back. And love is part of the very nature of God. Take away love and you don't have God. It's an essential quality of His character and His nature. This divine love that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And Romans 5.8, which we read this morning, says that God demonstrates His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Titus chapter 3 says, while we were, we all, let me try that again. Titus chapter 3, we ourselves were also once disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That is the history of the whole human race. Every person without exception. We ourselves were also once just like that. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, that is Christ, He redeemed us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Not by deeds which we have done in righteousness, but He redeemed us. And there's a reference to regeneration, that is rebirth and the love of God. It was when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. The Father loved us. I say, is this just a New Testament deal? I mean, I read the Old Testament, I don't read much about love back there, do we? Or do you? When you read the Old Testament, do you see a God of love on every page like you do in the New Testament? Think? Think? You say no? I say yes. I say yes. You know why? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 to 9. Listen to God's 
God's description of his own choosing of the nation of Israel. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, he is the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Does God love in the Old Testament? The choosing, the creation of the world was an act of love. God showed his love to Adam and Eve in the garden. God showed his love in not destroying Adam and Eve the moment that they sinned. God showed his love even toward Cain in the midst of his rebellion and his murder. God showed his love to Noah and his family and to all the peoples of the earth in giving them all of that time to repent. God showed his love in choosing Abraham to bring from him a nation through whom he would bring the Messiah. He showed his love to Isaac. He showed his love to Jacob. He showed his love to the twelve patriarchs. The whole Old Testament history is a history of God's love for mankind. And the reason he chose Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob and brought the nation of Israel into existence was that they would be a light to the nations around them and demonstrate to the nations around them the love and the loving kindness and the compassion of God for all men so that they would be a light and other people would turn to that God and receive all of those blessings. Every blessing ever bestowed upon an individual in the history of the world is a testament to the love of God. All over the Old Testament. Who can, who can forget the book of Jonah? Jonah chapter 4. Should I not have compassion on the inhabitants of the city of Nineveh? Every page of the Old Testament is a demonstration of the loving kindness and the compassion and the love and the grace of a loving God. When you get in the New Testament, it's just that we see it in such more vivid detail because love was manifested in Him sending His Son. And so it's painted in technicolor and high definition, if you will. But it's all over the Old Testament that God is a God of love. So we've talked about God and this being an essential part of His nature and His character. Second, this is our second heading, if you're following this very complex outline, loved. He loved. Now, what does it mean when you say that God loved somebody? It's different than what I mean when I say I love pizza or I love ice cream or I love water skiing or I love the sunshine or anything like that. There are different words, and many of you are familiar with the different words that could have been used for love in the New Testament times, three different Greek words that are used in our New Testament. Eros was used of, of uh, romantic love or erotic love. That's not the love that's being spoken of. Phileo is a word that was used of brotherly love or reciprocal love. I love you, you love me, I do things for you, you do things for me. It's kind of a neighborly love. Uh, that's not the love that's being spoken of here. The love that's being spoken of here is agape love. And that is a unidirectional love. It is a love that loves and sacrifices for the object of its affection. Agape love is a one-directional love. It loves even if it never receives anything back from the recipient of the love. It loves even in spite of its object. It doesn't ask for attributes or things in the object that might elicit that love. It simply is love that is given. It's a sacrificing love. It's a love that goes out and never expects anything in return. It's a sacrificial love. It's the love with which Christ is said to love his bride, the church. It is the same love that a man is to have for his wife and to love his bride. It is the love that God has for us, and it is the love here that God has for all mankind, for the world. For God so loved the world. It is unidirectional. It loves even in spite of its object, and that's the grandeur of it. It loves in spite of the object that is love. And it doesn't ask the object of its love to warrant the love. It just loves even though the object doesn't deserve or elicit that love. That's the love that's being spoken of. 
Now last, the term world. For God so loved the world. When John says world, what does he mean by world? The word is cosmos in the Greek. And like most English words, in fact, like almost every English word that I could think of off the top of my head, it has more than one meaning depending on its context. And a lot of Greek words have that. It can mean this or it can mean that. Sometimes they're opposite depending on the context in which they're used. The word cosmos is used by John throughout his gospel and even in the first epistle of John. And like most English words, we determine the meaning of the word based upon its context. So when John says, or Jesus said, for God so loved the world, what does he mean by world? Cosmos was used primarily in three different ways. First, it was used of the cosmos. That's why we get our English word from that cosmos. That is the created order, the planet around you. The orderly structure of the universe, that which has been created and that which is God's creation, that is the cosmos or the cosmos. And it's used that way in Greek literature to speak of the created order. Second, it's used of humanity in a number of different ways. It's used of humanity to refer to just the general public, like John chapter 7, I think it's verse 4, where Jesus' brothers say to him, nobody who wants to be known openly does all of his deeds in private. So if you want to be known publicly, you need to get out and show yourself to the world. That is, just to the general public. Stop doing things in private. Get out and do it before the world. That is, in the public. It's also used of the inhabitants of the world and with particular reference to their moral depravity. And you see this in John chapter 3, even verse 19. Look down a couple verses. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And there it's speaking of among men, that is the inhabitants of the cosmos, but specifically with reference to their moral depravity or their moral darkness. It is also used of just humanity in general, as in all mankind. A third way that it's used, first of the created order, second of people, third way that it is used in the New Testament is to speak of the world system. Love not the world or the things in the world. And there it speaks not of the creation, not of people, but of the world system, the way of thinking and operating and living which excludes God and is driven by Satan and is very worldly, very earthly, very temporal, very temporary and, and selfishly, humanly, demonically driven way of thinking. That's the world system. Now, which way does John use it here? Is he speaking of the earth? Some people would love to say, see, this shows how much God was an environmentalist, how green God is, that he loved the creation so much that he sent his son into the world to die for the earth. Some people would say that. There are people preaching that even this morning all over this country. That's not what John is referring to, nor is that what Jesus is saying. And certainly John is not saying that God loved the world system, that thing which is completely antithetical to him entirely, God could not love that, and God would not love that. He hates that, and because it is opposed to him, and he tells us not to love that. So what is it that John means? John means humanity or men. Now, what type of men? Specifically, when John uses the term world in a number of its contexts, what John has in mind is not just Jews, but Gentiles. That is, all of humanity. Not just the Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, peoples of all nations, All types of people, all kinds of people, all people, not just the Jews. Now, this is refreshing to us, but it would have been radical to Nicodemus. Hear that with Nicodemus' ears. Here was a Pharisee who had grown up thinking that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would come just with particular reference to the nation of Israel. That all of the blessings would be for that narrow group of people. And that the Messiah and God had nothing but disdain for any other nation other than the Jews. Refreshing to us, but radical to Nicodemus, to hear have somebody who is claiming to be the Messiah say to him, God loves not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, people of the whole world, all of humanity in general. That's the idea. Now, let's deal with an error. That is a false teaching that kind of comes in at this point. 
There is a false teaching out there that would say that God has no love for anyone but His elect. That God hates all His non-elect people. So they would say when it says that God so loved the world, what John meant was the elect from within all of the nations of the world. That is, all kinds of elect people. Not everybody, but all kinds of people, but just the elect of all kinds of people. So they would narrow down the reference to world to just the elect in the world. Now this is known as hyper-Calvinism. I've preached on this, against this on a number of occasions. And let me add this occasion to that list of occasions. That is a heresy. To suggest that God does not have any love whatsoever for the non-elect is a heretical doctrine. It should be evident just from the text here and from the whole Old Testament that God has love for all people. Not only all kinds of people, but all nations and all people within those nations for humanity in general. If you're not familiar with the difference between hyper-Calvinism and Calvinism, I'd recommend a good little book. Uh, Hyper-Calvinism was a, and I'll give you the title of it just in a second, but back up. Hyper-Calvinism was a heresy that Spurgeon fought against in London in the 1800s. One of the three major doctrinal controversies of the 1800s that basically Spurgeon fought himself into the grave to fight against, hyper-Calvinism. And this is one of the main tenets of hyper-Calvinism. If you want a good book uh, delineating the differences between hyper-Calvinism and Calvinism, I would recommend Spurgeon versus Hyper-Calvinism by Ian Murray. It's a phenomenal biographical treatment of Charles Spurgeon and hyper-Calvinism and shows the dangerous errors of it and how Spurgeon basically fought himself into a grave against that error. Spurgeon versus Hyper-Calvinism by Ian Murray. Have you ever heard of the Westboro Baptist Church? It sounds familiar. And when I when I tell you who they are, you're going to say, oh, yeah, 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 I probably saw that. Westboro Baptist Church is one little church over in the Midwest somewhere, and they go around to all of these different funerals, and they picket the funerals of fallen soldiers who come back in their caskets, or celebrities when Heath Ledger died recently. They were there at that, uh, calling him uh, all sorts of slang terms for homosexual because he had played in that um, uh, movie. You know which one I'm talking about. Uh, played in the movie, played a gay person in one of those movies. They pick at all of these funerals. You go to their website, and they'll give you a list of all their public appearances. They show up at these different places to pick it, and they hold up signs that say, God hates gays, God hates the USA, and every time they get on the news, they just spew out their vitriol of how much God hates everybody but them, and that's what they're most known for. The Westboro Baptist Church, they are emphatically avowed hyper-Calvinists. How do I know that? Not just from the signs that they hold up, but you can go to their doctrinal statement or any of the doctrinal statements that they have on their website, and if you know what to look for in hyper-Calvinism, you can read right down through there and say, these guys are hyper-Calvinists. And they believe that God has no pity, no compassion, no love, nothing, no affection whatsoever for anybody but the elect. And guess who the elect end up being with the Westboro Baptist Church? Yeah, about 20 people whose last names are all Phelps or Roper, one of the two. That's who the elect end up being. And they hate anybody who is not a believer. And they believe that God hates, hates everybody who is not a believer. That is hyper-Calvinism. Now, is that what our text teaches? For God so loved the what? The world. The world. All kinds of people. Jews, Gentiles, blacks, Chinese, Koreans, everybody. God so loved the world. And all people, all humanity in general. There is a love that God has for all of His creatures and all of those who bear His image, even though they might be reprobate, even though they might be unregenerate, even though they might hate Him. Fallen people, lost people, atheists still bear the image of God, and God still loves them because they are His image bearers. As marred as that image is by sin, they still bear the image of God, 
And God loves them as his image bearers. And he has affection for them and pity and compassion for them. And he loves all men. Now, it ought to be evident from our text on a number of different levels that God does not have every, nothing but hatred for all but the non-elect. Did I say that right? I'm not sure I did. Whatever, yeah, just reverse it in your mind. I'm not even going to bother trying to repeat that, but just reverse whatever I just said in your mind, unless it's heresy. Make it orthodox, and that's what I meant. That God hates all the non-elect. John 3.16, look, to, to suggest that world is that narrow is to strain the language of the text almost beyond recognition. It is to make the term world mean nothing, basically. Second, it ought to be evident to us that by world, John does not just mean the elect, because later on in the verse, he distinguishes between two groups in the world. Who are they? Those who believe and have eternal life, and those who do not believe and they perish. So there is amongst the world those who believe and those who do not believe, and since John distinguishes between those two groups within the group world, he can't mean by world just those that believe. Otherwise, he would have said, for God so loved the world, if John meant just the elect, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that the world would be saved. If he just meant world. But he distinguishes between unbelievers and believers from amongst the world that God loves. Third, it is to deny common grace. To suggest that by world God, John only means and Jesus only meant the elect is to deny common grace. It is to look out at all of the blessings, the rain that falls on the just and the unjust, and to say to yourself, none of that is evidence of God's love. He gives to the atheists, he gives to the Richard Dawkins and the Christopher Hitchens and the avowed atheists who hate Christ with such a purple passion. They hate him. They hate him. It's not just that they don't believe in God. They hate Christ. And he gives to them pleasure and food and joy and happiness and air to breathe and water to drink and taste buds and every rain on the just and the unjust. All of that is evidence of God's goodness toward those who hate him and his love for even those who despise his name. He loves all people. So, let me quote for you a Calvinist, not a hyper-Calvinist. The general love of God toward mankind is so clearly testified in the Holy Scripture and so demonstrated by the manifold effects of God's goodness and mercy extended to every particular man in this world that to doubt the general love of God toward mankind were infidelity and to deny it plain heresy. It's exactly what I believe. To doubt the general love of God for all mankind is infidelity and to deny it is heresy. Now does that mean that God, does that mean that God doesn't have any particular love for his people, his sheep, his church? That's not to say that. I love my enemies, but I don't love my enemies in the same way I love my wife. And God doesn't expect me to. There's a special love I have for my wife that I don't give to my enemies. And thankfully, I don't give to every other woman in this church. I have a love for my kids that, quite frankly, I don't have for your kids. And I don't make any apology for that whatsoever. But the fact that I love my kids in a way that I don't love your kids doesn't mean that I hate every kid that's not mine. I have a special love for my wife. I have a special love for that those that belong to me that are mine. I have that special love for them. It doesn't mean I hate everybody else. And it is the same with God. God's special love, His redeeming love, His sanctifying love, His electing love for His people is taught in Ephesians 5, for His bride, the church. It's taught in John 10 for His sheep. But it's not taught in John 3.16. What is taught in John 3.16 is that God so loved with a very general love, a very real love, and listen, a love that is more deep and profound than you and I can possibly imagine. He loved all mankind and all men who have ever lived. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, 
the grandness and the majesty of God's love is seen not only in the scope, that is the magnitude of the, the object of his love, but also in the quality of the object of his love. Do you think you were lovable? Do you look at yourself every morning in the mirror and say to yourself, it does not surprise me at all that God loved me. <laughs> you say that to yourself? Every time you sin, you say, you know, the love of God just, if there was anybody as lovable as me, I can understand how God, maybe not how God loves my wife, my husband, but how God would love me. Sure, I can understand that. Any of you ever say that? No, you don't. You look at the world and you realize that as, as wretched and vile and horrible and wicked and detestable as this world was and all of the people in it, that God still loved that. That is a love that is utterly beyond comprehension. It is a love that is so vast and so beyond the scope of our ability to fathom how God could hate that which should only, or sorry, how God could love that which should only elicit his hatred. There's nothing lovable about any person on this planet who has ever lived, save the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the most hated person who's ever lived. By us, not by the Father, but by us. There's nothing in us which would draw out from God his love. Nothing in us which would elicit that. When God looked down on humanity from the first sin onward, all he saw was that the thoughts and the intents of man's heart was only evil continually. That all we did was give ourselves over to sin and almost delight in the ruin of our race and of ourselves. And yet God loved us. And had God said, I hate every person that has ever lived on this planet, quite frankly, I would understand that. That would not cause me any alarm whatsoever. That would... I would, I would understand that and embrace that. It's the love that boggles my mind. Because of the unlovability of that which he loved. If God had said, I hate you, Osman, I would have, if I were in my right mind, said, I can understand that. I would hate me too if I were you. That didn't make any sense either how that was phrased. I would hate the objects that should elicit his hatred as well. But instead he loves us. That's, that's the magnitude and the scope of it. It's just, it's incomprehensible how you could love something that ought to only elicit your judgment, your wrath, and your utter contempt and hatred. And yet that's what we deserve. Spurgeon writes this, The love of God is a very wonderful thing, especially when we set it upon a lost and ruined, we see it set upon a lost and ruined and guilty world. What was there in the world that God should love it? There was nothing lovable in it. No fragrant flower grew in that arid desert. Enmity to him, hatred to his truth, disregard of his law, rebellion against his commandments, those were the thorns and briars which covered those wasteland. But no delightful thing blossomed there. That's the world that God loved. Not a single delightful thing which ought to elicit his love was present on this earth in the form of any man. Marvelous love. I was reading a couple months ago, uh, volume two of this two-volume work, The Existence and Attributes of God by Stefan Charnock, wrote in the 1600s. So this is one of those quotes that's like, days long without any punctuation, but I finally put a period in it so I could end the quote before lunch. Here's what Charnock saw it said. And he's speaking here on the love of God and the goodness of God. He so loved the world that he seemed for a time not to love his son in comparison of it or equal with it. The person to whom a gift is given is in that regard accounted more valuable than the gift of the present made to him. Thus God valued our redemption above the worldly happiness of the Redeemer and sentenced him to a humiliation on earth in order to our exaltation in heaven. He was desirous to bear him, hear him groaning and see him bleeding, that we might not groan under his frowns and bleed under his wrath. He spared not him that he might spare us, and refused not to strike him that he might be well pleased with us. He drenched his sword in the blood of his son, that it might not forever be wet with ours, but that is his goodness might forever triumph in our salvation. 
He was willing to have his son made man and die rather than that man should perish, who had delighted to ruin himself. But since he could not be united to any but to an intellectual creature, he could not be united to any viler and more sordid creature than the earthly nature of man. And when this son in our nature prayed that the cup might pass from him, goodness would not suffer it to show how it valued the manifestation of itself in the salvation of man above the preservation of the life of so dear a person. And that is why we as the saints say, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan, and oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. And the hymn that says, Could we with with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. And then one of my favorite hymns, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. That is immeasurable and abounding in love is our God, is it not? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to consider these things, to bask in the thought of your measureless and boundless love for us. We thank you that you have shed that love abroad in our hearts. We thank you that we have been the recipients of your special, electing, sanctifying, redeeming love. We also thank you that even in our vileness and in our sin and in our wickedness that you loved us. We thank you for the affection and the love that you have for all your creatures and all men everywhere. We thank you that it is immeasurable and boundless, and we pray, God, that you would give us the grace to reflect and to show that love to even those who hate you and who hate your name. Thank you, Father, for such a good God, such a good Savior, and such a boundless love to rejoice in. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.